The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at The Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan hosting for you today. Thanks for joining us for a special bonus feed drop of How Do We Fix It? Another terrific podcast that is part of the Democracy Group. In this special episode of How Do We Fix It? Host Richard Davies, who listeners might recognize from ABC News, speaks with author, conflict mediator, and social entrepreneur, Bill Shireman, who makes the case that the middle of 70% of the public should have a much greater say in who gets elected to make laws and decide policy. We are so proud that Village Square is a part of the Democracy Group, which is a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Now we join hosts Richard Davies and Jim Meggs, who introduce Richard's conversation with Bill Shireman for this special episode of How Do We Fix It? The middle 70% in this together with Bill Shireman. Right after the 2008 financial crisis, we heard the phrase, we are the 99%. Yeah, 99% were almost all of us as opposed to them, the 1%, the billionaires, the fat cats who were blamed, at least on the left, for the banking and mortgage mass. Right. And that 1% cry represented a, in many cases, a pretty radical left-wing critique of uh, American society and the economy. But our guest today has a different approach. He says most people are in what he calls the middle majority, about 70% who are neither far left nor far right. Bill Shireman says we're in this together. I talk about the middle 70%. This is the silenced majority of us, the common sense, reality-based voters, some of us conservative, some of us progressive, some of us moderate, some of us, I think, able to integrate some of those others. We have the common sense to, when we talk to each other, actually work out our differences. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Many guests on our podcast, Jim, go up against prevailing opinions, both left and right. And they're not just against things like polarization, but many of them are hopeful and, and curious about how we really can make the world a better place. Our guest today is both a capitalist and an activist. Bill Sharman works closely with two nonprofit groups, In This Together and Future 500. Bill has been a lifelong climate advocate and was deeply involved in the passage of the California Bottle Bill, legislation that brought together an unlikely coalition that included Coors Beer, Safeway Supermarkets, and the Sierra Club. Richard, I was wrapped up and wasn't able to join this conversation, but you spoke with Bill earlier this week about polarization, politics, and 
the systemic forces that keep us divided and angry. Bill Shireman, welcome to How Do We Fix It? I am glad to be here, Richard. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start with the stuff that's hot off the presses, the debt ceiling deal. Is it a sellout or an example of how both sides, Democrats and Republicans, can not only prevent economic and financial disaster, but also work together and and come up with a compromise? It's a lot closer to the first than the example. This is not the way we want the right and the left to work together to find compromise at the last minute. The debt ceiling battle has been insanity. So the drama over the debt ceiling, has that been the fault of the hard right, the House Freedom Caucus who made totally unrealistic demands of Kevin McCarthy, or the left that didn't want to negotiate at all on budget limits linked to the debt ceiling? The deception is that we're looking to see which is worse, the left or the right, the purest left or the purest right. And that's the trick. The political media wants us to choose between those two sides. They don't want us in the middle, those of us in the middle, to make these decisions well ahead of crisis. They want to divide the middle by gaming us into an argument about are the folks on the far right the craziest or are the folks on the far left the craziest? And that is a divide and conquer strategy that won't solve the debt problem in the long term or any of the other problems that are related to it. Bill, you just used the phrase, those of us in the middle. Mm -hmm. Do you mean moderates or something much broader than that? Much broader than that. I talk about the middle 70%. This is the silenced majority of us, the common sense, reality-based voters Some of us conservative, some of us progressive, some of us moderate, some of us, I think, able to integrate some of those others. We have the common sense to, when we talk to each other, actually work out our differences. So let's break this down a little bit on on a few policy issues. Let's look at immigration, which has been a hot potato lately. Um, What's the 70 percent stand on immigration? 70% stand on immigration is you can't have open borders and just allow people in without some kind of process. And you can't also uh, throw everybody out who came in at a time when the idea of immigration, we needed them as agricultural workers and industrial workers to do jobs for less money than Americans were willing to do those jobs. So we invited millions of people into the country on the one hand, while we told the public that it was illegal. And now we can't just turn around and toss everybody out. How does the 70% stand on immigration compare with what Democrats and Republicans in Congress are arguing about? The 70% in the broad middle can get together and decide So what is a sensible path for allowing a certain number of people into the country who can benefit from and benefit the country and our economy? And how do we deal with the millions of people who have come here when we invited them over or when they found their way over? The 70% can come up with those solutions because they're not extremists. 
What about climate change? I want to say, first of all, that the 70% in the middle is not against the 15% on the far right or the 15% on the far left. They're just more common sense than either of those extremes. On the far left, you've got folks who are so panicked about the climate crisis that they would hand over way too much money and power to the federal government to do everything that they could to stop the crisis when in reality they'd be falling into a trap of just shifting more money and more power to vested interests. The far right would go too far to deny the existence of climate change, its connection to human behavior, or the need to take action on it. The middle 70% would look to the left and say, yes, this is a problem that we need to deal with, and it's an urgent problem that doesn't require panic. It requires careful attention and action. And they would look to the right to say, absolutely, we don't want to overreact or misreact to this. We don't want to just empower big government to take greater control of our lives. We want to make rational decisions to cut our carbon emissions and to restore a healthy climate as soon as we reasonably and realistically can, given the limits of science and money. From childhood, Bill, you've been concerned about the environment, what we're doing to it. That's what brought you into politics, right? Yes, it's true. Well, at the age of, you know, eight and eight and ten, I I was very concerned about what was happening to the global environment. And I thought, well, we have got to take action. That was pretty much, you know, classic. It's the oil company's fault. Uh, we've got to, you know, split the oil companies apart. We've got to take action to stop the development of our natural systems. And over time, I've learned that, yes, we absolutely need to protect the environment. And the way to do that is to really learn from nature and shift to nature's processes and ensure that we have healthy living forests and oceans and climate and living systems, biodiverse ecosystems out there. And we can't do that just by either locking nature up or developing every last square inch of the planet. We need to do it with things like clean energy choices that are supported by the vast majority of people, whether it's solar or wind or low carbon fuels, alternative fuels, oil and gas with carbon capture, nuclear, hydrogen. We need the variety of clean energy choices to get the job done. And then we need conservation and nature-based solutions. That means we need to have healthy oceans that are absorbing as much carbon as they can healthfully sustain, healthy forests that are also absorbing carbon, and biodiverse ecosystems that are able to adapt and change readily uh, and not collapse under pressure. And then we need a more circular economy where instead of just extracting resources from the ground and then quickly using them up and throwing them away, we are cycling resources over and over again. And even more than that, we are developing our knowledge so that we continually innovate and develop more efficient and effective ways to get the job done. The 70%, what's holding us back? Well, what's, what's preventing the 70% from coming together is the political media business model. This is classic divide and conquer. The political media business model 
essentially takes that middle 70% and it divides it in two. It pushes the left half of our middle further to the left by amplifying for them the very worst things that folks on the far conservative right say, the bigotries and the anger and the lies and so on, that pushes the middle left further left, and then they push the middle right further to the right by amplifying the insults and arrogance of the most extreme folks on the left to them. Who are they? I mean, who, who, what is the political media industry? Well, is this mainstream media? Is it, is it political professionals? Who, who are these guys? It is, it is all of the above and more. I guess the most obvious way to look at it is that the political industry consists of uh, political strategists and consultants and message makers and pollsters and politicians and campaign managers and advertising agencies uh, that uh, profit by getting people elected in order to make decisions that benefit the interest groups that pay their bills. And that political industry has co-opted the news media industry to essentially serve that business model as well. How do we take away the incentives for this business model? The left would argue more government regulation is required. Yeah. Um, yeah. Regulation, for instance, of political advertising or, or mm -hmm. dark money and political campaigns. How do you fix it? The problem is actually much easier to solve than we imagine when we think we got to take over government, you know, and impose a socialist system on the country or destroy the socialists and, and empower the capitalists to take charge. It's it does not require that. All it takes is a small number of folks who are aware of how we're being gamed to build a bridge between the political left and right foster communication between the political left and right so that we've got three, five, 10% of voters who will not divide the way we are triggered to divide between the blame the left versus blame the right community, but who will unite and say, you know, those extremists on the left and the extremists on the right, they know some things that we should listen to, but they're also crazy and we are not gonna put them in charge but we are going to take charge, sensible conservatives, sensible progressives that can work out our differences. And we're going to make sure that the incentives in elections are always to appeal to us. We will be the margin of victory that decides the outcomes. We've all seen what's happened in presidential races and state races over the last few cycles, that the critical elections are decided by 1%, maybe 2% of the people in those districts. That's all we need to correct this system. We're hearing from Bill Shireman on How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. With Richard Davies. And before heading back to our interview, a quick mention about our newsletter, because Jim writes some really interesting articles for commentary and also does research for the Manhattan Institute. And Richard, you co-host another podcast called Let's Find Common Ground and write for the democracy newsletter, The Fulcrum. You can find out what we're up to by signing up for our newsletter at How Do We Fix It? And uh, you go to our website. At howdowefixit.me. 
We have more of our interview with Bill Shireman, plus a recommendation and our conversation ahead. You call yourself an activist. In your own case, I mean, what does that mean? Well, I'm I'm a pro-activist uh, because my first objective is to solve problems. The way I and others can solve problems is by connecting people together who have different kinds of power and knowledge and insights. We need the conservatives because they value what we have generated. Then they want to conserve what is sacred. We need the progressives because they are reaching to be even better than we've been in the past. We need the liberators, but we don't need to put either side of the extremists in charge. We need to listen to the conservatives and listen to the progressives and then figure out how to accomplish our objectives while we protect what's sacred. Both the two main parties have changed a lot in recent years. The Trump takeover of the Republican Party was the most glaring example in the, in the past decade or so. What's changed in your view with, with both parties? Now, both parties have lost any real connection to ideology. Uh, or even to vested interests. It used to be that you could pretty much depend on Republicans to uh, express an ideology that was small government oriented, that helped to empower individuals, and that kept our costs low and taxes low. It used to be that you could depend on the Democrats to seek to provide what people needed to protect the environment, to advance social justice. But the parties don't stand for those things anymore. Everything is up for grabs now. What the parties do is that they amplify the voices of the most extreme in order to serve the dollars of the most powerful. What we're really doing is we're, we're seeing an industry that has evolved, a political industry that has evolved where politicians play a, a supporting role. They're not the ones in charge, they're just jockeying for position within the, the two Titanics. Everyone is just doing what's in their short-term best interest. And so political power brokers and strategists will ensure that there are threats out there to the corporate world or to unions or to other institutions so that they can extract money from them to protect them. And they will continue to tell the base that they're going to take care of the issues that they care most about. That keeps people divided and it keeps the, the political industry extracting money from vested interests in order to divide out the $4.5 trillion that the public is providing them every year for our goods and services. Now, that, that kind of works. It keeps us alive for a while, right? But what it does is it takes the cap off the amount of money that we're spending because vested interests always want a few more dollars and the political industry is always willing to sell them a few more dollars. 30 to 40 years ago, it wasn't that unusual to find moderate Republicans who, who said they're moderates mm -hmm. and moderate Democrats who sometimes buck their own party. Uh, right. That doesn't happen nearly as much as it used to, at least in Congress. Is this because the uh, political 
industry, the political media industry that you rail against is so much more successful at doing the job of dividing us than was the case in the past? Well, it's kind of true, but not exactly. You look at the extremists on the right and the extremists on the left, and you say, well, they're both kind of anti-corporate, anti-institution, anti-status quo. They see the problems of a system where there's too much power concentrated in a few entities. Really, it's hard to see the difference between them now. Uh, They actually have a lot of the same beefs with the system. The extremists are actually right about certain things. The, The conservatives are right that we can't just keep spending money forever and going deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. And the left is correct that we can't solve that by charging the cost off to the underclass, the middle class, marginalized communities, folks who don't have the resources or the power to, to, to pay it. That, those are real challenges that we have to deal with. There's not enough money to fund the status quo to provide all of us with all the things that we want. That means we actually need to change the status quo, not overthrow it, not you know toss it out, but actually change it, challenge it. That means innovation. It means adaptation. So you're calling for more active citizens, people who are really going to step up and be more involved in the workings of democracy. Yes. I'm asking for the people who are probably least inclined to engage in politics because we need you. We need the scout leaders. We need the churchgoers. We need the, you know, the spiritual communities. We need the service clubs. We need the parents and the students and the moms in particular to step up and engage in making these decisions because we are the common sense majority, the silenced majority. Our voices are not heard in the political media industry. And we're the ones that need to step up and we need to step out of the culture wars that are being played around us. Bill Shireman, thanks very much. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate your efforts in all this and uh, we're all in this together. Great. Thanks, Bill. Bill Shireman. Jim, I really want to hear what you think about his ideas, but first let's do a recommendation. Richard, it's your turn this week for a recommendation. And I know it's a podcast that touches on shaming and social media mobs. Tell us more. The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling is an audio documentary, beautifully produced, a brilliant young host, Megan Phelps Roper, uh, put it together. It is really about one of the most contentious conflicts, bitter conflicts of our time, which is the the social media shaming of the world's most successful author, J.K. Rowling. Uh, and we hear from her. She speaks with, with candor uh, and passion and also great intelligence. Um, it's, it's a very interesting show. And I don't think any listener who goes through the seven parts will come away without their views on at least something changed or challenged. I've actually listened to the first two episodes of this. 
J.K. Rowling is perceived by many, including a lot of my friends, as being some kind of anti-trans radical. And people say absolutely horrible things. She wants children to die. This is a genocide. The most extreme over-the-top accusations, not because she's actually in any way advocating for for you know any kind of bias against trans people. But in Britain, there's a controversy over what they call self-ID. Can somebody determines that they are the opposite sex, can they legally just say, okay, now I'm a man or now I'm a woman and be entitled to, to occupy all the spaces that are reserved for one sex or the other? And this becomes a, a really difficult issue not in terms of just bathrooms or trivial things like that, but in terms of women's shelters, women's prisons, there are literally cases where somebody might be accused of rape, but wants to be housed in a women's prison. And that's what she came out against. It was widely misrepresented as, you know, as this, this podcast does such a good job showing, widely misrepresented in the media as being a far broader attack on, on trans people, which it was not. Absolutely. And and she comes across as a committed feminist, someone who's thought deeply about this rather than just being merely reactive. And what's also fascinating is the podcast doesn't just include an interview with her and and lambasting her critics. It also goes into Megan Phelps Roper's own story as a, a member of a very far-right, radical Christian community when she was a, a younger woman. And anyway, it's a great exploration and, and a real story. But Richard, you've shocked me a little here. You're usually the advocate for a nice, tight, re- relatively short podcast, and we make an effort not to go too long on this one. But the this podcast really goes on at great narrative length. It's almost like reading a novel. Did you did you find it rewarding despite the length? Yeah, as you suggest, it's almost like a novel. And I enjoy listening to audiobooks. The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling was kind of a cross between a podcast and a novel. And uh, I guess that's one reason why I recommended it. Coming next our chat about the interview with Bill. Bill Shireman, in this together. I did the interview. I asked the question. So uh, I'm going to ask a question of you, Jim. What did you think? Did you think he had an interesting perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think for both of us, this kind of thing is is really in our wheelhouse. That middle 70% is kind of the group that we hope is listening to our podcast and that we are providing some uh, ideas and support for this notion that it's possible to be part of that that middle majority. And I was especially interested in his assertion that there are forces in the the media political landscape, including economic forces, that there is money to be made by pushing people farther apart. There's There are political gains to be made by occupying the extremes rather than the messy middle where you have compromise. Over the last few days, I've really been interested in seeing all the blowback from 
people on the right to Kevin McCarthy for the deal that the House Speaker struck with Biden over the debt ceiling. There's a lot of people on the right who are saying he didn't get enough and he should have been tougher and he caved to the White House. They don't really recognize or acknowledge that in this situation, the Speaker of the House doesn't have a lot of power. The Republicans don't have a big majority in the House and you know they don't control the Senate or the White House. So it may be that this was the best deal that, that somebody could, could reach. But the people criticizing him, they've got no skin in the game. They're not required to come up with a solution. They're not in there negotiating the messy details. But by just you know ranting and, and railing about uh, um, about McCarthy, they can get on Fox News, they can get on Twitter, they can rile up their followers. This is an unhealthy dynamic. I've been looking at the reaction from the left. And it has been exactly the same, but in reverse, that they have criticized the Biden administration for caving to McCarthy and giving away far too much. So I find it fascinating that you have this dynamic going on where the hard right and and the hard left uh, in both parties are furious. And that's another area where the media has an incentive to emphasize division. It has an incentive to actually really drive people apart. You can see it in the New York Times. You can see it on Fox News. You can see it on CNN. It's not just a matter of of some Twitter algorithm. It's also incentives that are right there in how our news media works. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and this show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits, especially in the bridging space, uh, for people and organizations that want to bring us apart, that want to bring us together. Rather, that than was a good blow us apart. I know, I know. <laughs> Thanks for it's, listening. It's, even we're affected by these <laughs> these underlying farces. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you so much for listening to this special presentation of How Do We Fix It? The middle 70% in this together with Bill Shireman. Before we close, we'd be honored if you would consider joining our members and supporting this program. You can become a member of Village Square for just $7 a month or $76 a year. And your business can join for $250. Just go to villagesquare.us slash donate. That's www.villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. And while you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for the sign-up box. We appreciate you listening to this bonus episode of Village Squarecast, a special presentation of How Do We Fix It? Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Mm